the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to this Monday edition of The Dan Proft Show. Thanks for joining us. Please follow us, danproftshow.com, on social media at danproftshow. Get podcasts at danpropshow.com as well as on Spotify and Apple. And we begin with St. Andrew of COVID-19, who has uh, now fallen into his own piranha tank, hasn't he? Uh, Friday press conference he had trying to explain away the nursing home scandal that is roiling his governorship that has, uh, has Democrats, Democrats in New York State, uttering the I word and not in the direction of President Trump, AOC calling for a federal investigation or an investigation into the Cuomo administration's handling of nursing homes through the pandemic. And Ron Kim, a state assemblyman, Democrat from Queens, explaining how he was treated by Cuomo after he publicly criticized Cuomo's handling of nursing homes when the admission was given by a Cuomo aide that they purposely withheld information from state legislators about what was happening in nursing homes because, well, in her words, they were afraid that there may be incriminating evidence effectively that they would be disclosing. Now, Cuomo sanitized that for the purposes of his presser, characterized that as just focusing on prioritizing compliance with DOJ over disclosure to state legislators. Here's what uh, Assemblyman Kim had to say about his exchange with the governor. When we get closer to the truth behind the growing nursing home scandal in New York, Governor Cuomo tries to implicate you in the cover-up or threatens your livelihood if you don't lie for him. And that's what happened to me in the last one week. I was one of six lawmakers in that private meeting for two hours with Secretary DeRosa when she accidentally told us the truth, that there was a cover-up and fear that the information would be weaponized against Governor Cuomo. That moment, I had to tell the truth and I had to let the public know what happened. And Governor Cuomo called me the, late, the next day at 8 p.m. While I was about to bathe my kids, I was with my wife. And for 10 minutes, uh, he berated me. Uh, he yelled at me. Uh, he told me that, you know, my career will be over. He's been biting his tongue for months against me. And I had tonight, not tomorrow, tonight to issue a new statement, essentially asking me to lie. Um, and asking me, like, I, I just, I heard and I saw a crime the other day. And he's asking me that I did not see that crime. And uh, Cuomo put on his happy face for the Friday press briefing, the sort of press briefings that uh, uh, earned him an International Emmy Award from a compliant press corps. Uh, and that's a big part of this story, too. The compliance and the cheerleading of the press corps for the last year. Don't let any outlet other than the New York Post fool you in pretending they were doing anything other than canonizing, helping with the public canonization of Cuomo and his book sales for the better part of the last year until we're at this point now where Democrats are rolling on him. But it was all happiness uh, from Cuomo where he's announcing that nursing home visitors will be allowed in New York State as of today and 
students deserve in-class teaching, boy, changing his tune just as he did with his State of the State address a few weeks back where, you know, it's time to reopen the economy, not the uh, the lockdown antagonist of the president of the Trump administration that we had gotten used to talking about college reopening, testing thresholds, and so on and so forth, and then finally getting around to spend 10 minutes, as David Marcus wrote in the New York Post, with sort of groundbreaking gaslighting that uh, he engaged in in order to frame what the real issue is and thus what his response will be to the real issue. So Andrew Cuomo setting the record straight on nursing homes and, and the void that his administration left. That was the problem. It was a comms problem. Uh, I want to set the record straight on nursing homes for a number of reasons, primarily for the families of nursing home people. We created a void by not producing enough public information fast enough. People wanted information. We did not produce public information fast enough. That creates a void. What happens in a void, especially today, in this toxic political environment, uh, something fills the void. And conspiracy theories and politics and rumors fill the void. And you can't allow inaccurate information to go unanswered. See, he created a void because he was so concerned, busy being concerned about the families of nursing home residents, so busy saving lives. He created a void. And in that void entered conspiracy theories and, you know, politics, partisan politics and so forth. Oh, yeah. And evidence. Uh, New York Post reporting over the weekend, Governor Cuomo repeatedly defending the directive for nursing homes to accept COVID-19 patients as a product of federal guidance. However, in contrast, the health department since rescinded March 25th memo that, that, that left little wiggle room, the New York Post reports, to prevent medically stable patients from being transferred out of hospitals to nursing homes. During this global health emergency, all NHs, nursing homes, must comply with the expedited receipt of residents returning from hospitals to nursing homes, quoting the state directive issued by said Governor Cuomo. And if there's any doubt about what that meant, the following sentence was underlined. No resident shall be denied readmission or admission to the nursing home solely based on a confirmed or suspected diagnosis, diagnosis of COVID-19. Uh, that was not consistent with the federal guidance. So uh, that's what actually was occurring. That's the evidence they knew existed that ran counter to the decision-making by the governor. And he didn't want to admit to it because he would be culpable for the consequences of that decision, those decisions. And so now, a year later, almost, we have this uh, uh, effort to recast the whole thing while he's getting besieged by all sides, with per perhaps some exception from that same cheerleading press corps, to say this was just about the failure to properly communicate. So busy doing the Lord's work, representing you, fighting for you. I didn't have time to produce as much information and filter it out to the public or to other stakeholders and elected officials as I as I should have. That's my failure. And that's the ability that's the effort to redefine the issue at bar so that he can redefine what the, the, the corrective action is. We did not aggressively enough take on the misinformation that caused people pain uh, and it caused pain for grieving families. And that's what I regret. I'm not going to make that mistake again. Uh, if you're lying to the people of the state of New York, I'm going to call it out. If you are lying in a report 
I'm going to call it out. If you're lying in a newspaper because you have your own partisan agenda, I'm going to call it out. Okay, so now Captain America is going to call out the liars in the press corps, in the political arena, and so forth, right? The, the classic projection onto others, your behavior, boogeyman politics, which the left traffics in. And Cuomo sticking to his assertion, remember it was just uh, the other week, uh, who cares where somebody died? They died and the numbers were accurate. The numbers were accurate. Still sticking to that story. Got to, I guess. It is a lie to say any numbers were inaccurate. That is a lie. Total deaths were always reported to nursing homes and hospitals. New York State legislators requested information. Yes, they did. We said we would pause the state legislature's request because we gave DOJ precedence. And that's what I was referring to before. You know, we weren't hiding anything. We just had to comply with the Department of Justice before we provided information to New York state legislators. Well, there's nothing but lies there or certainly purposeful misstatements. The issue is not whether or not you got the aggregate aggregate number of deaths correct. The issue is, did you properly represent the percentage of deaths that occurred in nursing homes? And it does matter, the distribution of deaths, because the policy that you enacted is a proximate cause of the deaths, at least some of the deaths in those nursing homes. And this isn't just me saying it. This is an examination by a think tank in New York called the Empire Center, as reported by uh, James Freeman over the, his best of the webcom in the Wall Street Journal. The admissions, this is from their report, the Empire Center. The admission of coronavirus positive patients into New York nursing homes under March 25th guidance from the New York State Department of Health was associated with a statistically significant increase in resident deaths. The data show that each new admission of a COVID positive patient correlated with 0.09 additional deaths with a margin of error plus or minus 0.05. Further, admitting any number of new COVID positive patients was associated with an average of 4.2 additional deaths per facility, margin of error, margin of error plus or minus 1.9. So that data clearly suggests that Cuomo's policy costs lives and not just a few of them. And this is why he can be the state was off by what was the attorney general's report, some 40 percent in the actual number of deaths that occurred in nursing homes that were covid covid related versus what was reported. And it does matter. He wants to make this, ag you know, in the aggregate, in the aggregate, we were accurate. And it doesn't matter where it happened because he wants to paper over that particular decision he made with respect to nursing homes that was catastrophic. It is time, and I hope this is what comes to pass, for Andrew Cuomo, St. Andrew, and his nipple rings. Did you see that from a couple months ago? Uh, I, I don't know if De Niro still want to portray him in the movie that he and Fauci talked about. It is time for him to be buried politically, and he can keep his international Emmy, and he can keep his uh, best-selling book as well. This is Dan Prof. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show welcome back to the dan proft show uh, back when uh, america's chief threat was the soviet union it was the Soviet Union and trying to expand its empire and influence the world over, including into the West and handcuff America. They would do so with uh, economic aid and, uh, and weapons. 
now are we in a period in 21st, the 21st century world where it is a Sputnik and Sinovac or vaccine diplomacy, the, uh, the uh, means by which America's enemies, both Russia but particularly China, seek to extend their influence in the West for help in exploring that question and the implications of the answer. Pleased to be joined by Cindy Yu. She's broadcast editor and China reporter at The Spectator, also host of The Spectator's Chinese Whispers podcast. Cindy, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Hi there. The uh, vaccine diplomacy, the Wall Street Journal had a piece I know you've written about in The Spectator, Wall Street Journal, too, taking notice of this over the weekend, talking about uh, how China is trying to position itself as a white knight in the second world and developing world with respect to uh, gifting uh, doses of its vaccine to those countries. And and um, this vaccine diplomacy is not just uh, the Chinese communists' uh, fullness of heart. This is not just a humanitarian effort. This is a political one, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. I think that China is not doing this for humanitarian reasons, although, of course, you know, all the regular arguments about the world getting herd immunity faster being good still applies. But China is seeing it very much as a soft power uh, potential. And we saw this last year with China's PPE diplomacy, where it shipped out donations of masks and other gear to countries in need during a global shortage. That was, you know, a bit of a mixed result because some of the PPE was found to be substandard. Now vaccines are, you know, the next big thing because Pfizer and AstraZeneca, you know, these big Western companies, they're doing very well, but they're supplying uh, mainly Western countries. And those developing countries who have put orders in probably won't be expecting them until later this year. Um, Places like Mexico, for example, started the year having Pfizer vaccines, but then supplies dried up across the world um, and they've had to turn to the Russian vaccine. So it's a great it's a very powerful diplomatic tool for great powers to be uh, getting their hands into. And the difference, the advantage for China is that it's currently not vaccinating its own people at the breakneck speed that it could be doing, which means that a lot of its vaccines can be exported abroad. Uh, and, and, and you know, this is what uh, China can get away with, so to speak. I mean, this, this idea that they uh, put their citizens in a uh, uh, inferior position to the rest of the world because politics is their aim, not serving the Chinese people. Uh, and so this this presents a real challenge for the West, the U.S. and the U.K., as you mentioned in your piece in The Spectators. This is something to worry about is their uh, ability to befriend and establish beach holes in places like South America, which is what the Chinese and the Russians are doing. Yes, exactly, exactly. And I think what's what's interesting about um, this story is that, um, you know, until maybe early February, a lot of people and politicians certainly weren't really talking about it. Obviously, last Friday, we had the G7 conversation where Boris Johnson, the UK prime minister, was talking to Joe Biden and other world leaders about donating vaccines. But until then, the developing world hasn't really on top of the been on top of the Western radar, um, and which has left a gap for China and Russia to slip into. Um, now, when it comes to China not vaccinating its own people, I would say it's a bit of a a more balanced picture than China putting others above its own people. It's more that because of its zero COVID strategy of how strict these border controls are, 
there is very little COVID in the country, which means that people themselves are not very keen to be injected with these quite speedily developed jabs anyway. So there's no clamor from the bottom. And I think if there were, China would find itself in a much trickier position with exporting literally hundreds of millions of doses. Okay, so you you just you just nail people in their homes. You should subjugate them, and this is a way where you don't have to uh, hear uh, field complaints or or any uprising for vaccines as the rest of the world is getting vaccinated. Then they they spin their propaganda that uh, we were on the preventative side for our people, and we performed so much better than the Western world, and now we're helping the Western world because you know this is why we're uh, this is why we should uh, you know be the world's global superpower. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that um, there's a lot to unpack there. I mean, first of all, it's not just propaganda that China is um, has done better in the COVID um, pandemic than maybe perhaps America has, and certainly from my, where I sit in London, certainly better than the UK has. Um, if you talk to anyone in China now, they're not at the stage anymore where they're locked in their homes because that strict lockdown happened in the early months of last year. And since then, you know, we saw, you presumably saw pictures of the Wuhan pool party, uh, New Year's Eve parties, Chinese New Year migrations. Life is very much back to normal, except people can't really get into the country and people can't really get out. So that's the, you know, the entire country is in a bubble at the moment, as it but, were. But with which respect... Is how yeah, but with respect to the, uh, what we understand about uh, the incidence of uh, cases and, and hospitalizations and deaths, I mean, how much... Can we rely on the data that is being put out by the Chinese Communist government? Sure, it's an incredibly valid question, and I do think that China clearly has been um, manipulating the numbers. You know, when we're looking at Wuhan, uh, in one day the death toll uh, doubled because they changed the way they defined a COVID death, right? So clearly the party has a hand in these numbers. That's definitely true. But if there was a pandemic situation going on in China, you'd hear much more on social media, uh, via hospitals about, you know, this pandemic overwhelming people. Even if you don't diagnose it as COVID, uh, there would be some kind of health crisis. And that's not what we're seeing here. Um, mm. and, that, and that's the thing about this, this pandemic is that even if you're not testing, even if you're not reporting, people are still getting sick, right? So, you know, healthcare officials are still going to see that happening. And uh, we're not seeing that at the moment. Um, um, now, of course, you know, you, you, it could be huge scale asymptomatic infection or whatever it is, but certainly the health system is not being overwhelmed in the same way that it was in Wuhan in January. How did you interpret uh, the WHO pronouncements about uh, where this virus may have started and the suggestion that it was uh, uh, unlikely to have originated in that Wuhan virology lab, something that runs counter to what uh, Matt Pottinger, formerly the State Department of the Trump administration, and others have suggested the evidence suggests? Yeah, of course. I mean, in my understanding, this, this is the first of many missions that the WHO intends to carry out in Wuhan in China. And I, you know, I wasn't on the mission, but, you know, there's been some mixed mixed reviews coming out of there. Peter Daszak, who is one of the leading epidemiologists who was on there, claims the Chinese side were very transparent. On the other hand, you've got Dutch scientists who are on the mission who say that they weren't and they tried to foil them at every step. So it's it's very hard to know just how much the Chinese were cooperating. Certainly, we do know that they weren't allowed to go into the Wuhan lab uh, that is in question. Um, but, you know, not being scientists, it's very hard to know why the WHO uh, justified not, you know, how they justified not looking into that lab further uh, based on just genomic data. So that's, you know, that's, that's incredibly hard for outsiders to commentate on, unfortunately.
Mm. She is Cindy Yu, broadcast editor and China reporter at The Spectator, also host of The Spectator's Chinese Whispers podcast. Cindy, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thank you. Political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. We need to uh, examine what happened in Texas because the left is using the uh, power outage there and uh, the ensuing devastation to so many families, which... You know, it persists. Thankfully, the weather has broken and the power is being restored. But uh, you still have uh, two thirds of the population under a boil water order. So what happened? Was it, as the left says, a failure of free market capitalism, a failure of uh, reliance on the federal government? Uh, Here is what Governor Greg Abbott had to say, uh, including about uh, the electric uh, rate uh, authority that was charged with maintaining the power grid in Texas at a presser he had end of last week. They said five days before the winter storm hit, the ERCOT CEO assured ERCOT, and I quote, we're ready for the cold temperatures coming our way. He said that ERCOT had issued a notice to power plants to ensure that they were winterized properly. And ERCOT's annual winter assessment which is designed to ensure that the state is prepared, assured the public that there would be enough power to meet peak demand this winter. ERCOT failed on each of these measures that they said they had undertaken. Texans deserve answers about why these shortfalls occurred and how they're going to be corrected, and Texans will get those answers. I'm taking responsibility for the current status of ERCOT. So that's Abbott, uh, who proposed a package of reforms to the Electric uh, Reliability Council of Texas, which manages the power grid. But what exactly happened? Was it uh, market externalities that, uh, that created moral hazards with respect to energy investment in the state of Texas? Well, that's in part what uh, Jason Isaac who gave an extended interview over at the Epoch Times, which is very good. I'll post the whole thing, but uh, some important snippets from it. Uh, Jason Isaac is uh, the energy point person for the Texas Public Policy Foundation. Uh, he had uh, this to say, and this is uh, coming from somebody who wrote about uh, eight, ten months ago, uh, the vulnerability the Texas power grid had to a an unforeseen weather event. He was thinking it would be extreme heat during the summer, not extreme cold during February, but uh, his point notwithstanding. Sure. This is a culmination of bad policy that's been put in place that's been distorting the market for decades now, not only in Texas at the federal level, but has propped up one form of energy production that's unreliable over another form of energy production that is reliable. And market distorting policies at the federal level have propped up wind and solar that are intermittent, variable, unreliable sources that only provide electricity when the wind is blowing or the sun is shining. Uh, And they have competed so much that they've outpaced and outplaced 
and displaced natural gas, clean coal, and nuclear generation. We've seen a net loss of thermal generation, which is electricity from natural gas, coal, or nuclear, over the last five years. A decrease when our population, our economy have, have not gone in that direction. They've actually increased significantly. But we have seen a massive increase in wind and solar generation over the last four years that just didn't come through incredibly small percentage of electricity being generated on Valentine's night and early President's Day morning, Monday morning, uh, from these unreliable sources. Uh, so that there's that is really the precipice of how this began. It just wasn't a one-time issue. We've known this was coming for years at the Texas Public Policy Foundation. I actually wrote about this and warning about this eight months ago. And it turns out that um, of the 45 gigawatts of, of uh capacity that shut down during the storm or shut down by the storm, uh, 40% of that, 18 gigawatts, were from wind and solar. So it's not the whole story, but it's a significant part. Uh, also, just getting Jason Isaac's uh, uh, response to the criticism that, well, Texas is, you know, independent streak and its lack of connection to the federal grid is also a, a mistake. This is uh, what happens when you want to go it alone rather than lean on the federal government. No, we're, we're an independent state, and we like to have, we like our Texas independence. And the last thing we want to do is have our grid controlled by the any kind of federal regulatory agency or the federal government. We like having it independent. We like managing it. But we, we want to see the elimination of these market-distorting policies that pick one type of winner over another type uh, of reliable source of electricity generation. So uh, we're, we're already connected to the eastern grid and the western grid and even Mexico. So we do power sharing and power trading with those interchanges to the east, to the west, and to Mexico from time to time. Sometimes we're importing electricity from Mexico and other times we're exporting it. Uh, it, it seems to work. The setup is good. The management was poor and market distorting policies via subsidies uh, have really hampered us. And this has been a long time coming. When we come back, we'll be joined by Robert Bryce of the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity to talk about uh, that uh, Texas uh, power outage and uh, how it came to be and what should be done in the wake of it. More right after this. The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. We're now pleased to be joined by Robert Bryce, visiting fellow at the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity. He's the host of the Power Hungry podcast and author of A Question of Power, Electricity and the Wealth of Nations. He's also the writer of the documentary Juice, How Electricity Explains the World. Robert Bryce, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks. Glad to be with you, Dan. What is your assessment of uh, what uh, uh, fellow uh, uh, egghead uh, Jason Isaac had to say about uh, what happened in Texas? (laughs) Egghead? I thought you were going to say handsome guy, smart guy. Well, you know, I say that with all love, yes. (laughs) <laughs> okay. Well, I think that some of the things that Jason is saying are absolutely right, and, and that, that I think that the key issues here are that the structure in ERCOT didn't favor resilience and 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 and, and surplus. It, it, it actually 
favored shortages. That that it was an energy only market, and the renewable industry loved that because they didn't have to provide in the market structure. They didn't have to provide power when power was dear. In other words, they didn't have to deliver kilowatts, megawatts, gigawatts when demand was high. They could provide that when demand was low. So by being in that kind of market, it was it skewed the market toward renewables in a way and the structure of the market itself did. But I want to back out for just a minute because I think the broader story, and it's the piece that I wrote in Forbes a week ago, and it was I published it almost well exactly seven days ago when we when right after we lost power in our house here in central Austin. We were without electricity for forty five very cold hours. Hmm. And but that this this move to electrify everything is the uh, linchpin of the climate activists' plan for the future. They want to put all of our transportation load, industrial load, residential load, everything onto the electric grid. Well, it's a recipe for disaster. It's putting all of our energy eggs in one basket, and it and, and we have already seen how uh, fragile the electric grid is. So the idea that we should quit using natural gas directly in our homes and and, and rely solely on on electricity. That is, I think, the biggest issue at hand and one that we ignore at our peril. And, and, and the media talking about this is like the media talking about guns. I mean, they don't even uh, bother to understand what they're trying to communicate. So you hear people conflating, you know, natural gas froze. And it's not natural gas, no, natural gas didn't freeze. The gas didn't freeze. But some of the equipment that delivers the natural gas did. And so there were also questions about the necessary maintenance and winterization efforts uh, in Texas with respect to its grid. Well, that's absolutely true. And one of the other things that is that, and and two points. One is natural gas now in the United States is providing about 40% of all the electricity that's that's generated in this country. It was the hero during the Texas blackouts. Without natural gas, the U.S. grid would have collapsed, uh, the Texas grid would have collapsed. So it's time for us to understand that natural gas is a critical fuel for the United States. There's just no getting around it. A lot of people like to hate hydrocarbons, and now they're, you know, they're full-on efforts to ban natural gas. But we, the idea that we should shut down our entire natural gas grid, it's the envy of the world. And uh, it's a critical fuel and needs to be a, a, understood as a piece of our critical infrastructure. One other point that I think would, deserves a lot of, of, of attention as well, and you're in Chicago, correct? You're in Illinois? Right. Right. Well, Exelon is getting ready to close two nuclear reactors in Illinois. The lesson from the big takeaway lesson, perhaps more than any other from Texas and the Texas blackouts, is do not close your nuclear plants. They are critical to your the stability of your electric grid. The, we can talk about what you know, what forms of generation performed well, which ones didn't. There's no doubt that's clear that the, the nuclear reactors, four of them in Texas, at, at Comanche Peak and in South Texas Project, produced and performed better than any other form of generation. Without those, Texas grid would have really been in the hurt locker. Well, so, and, this is, and this, is, this is the idea of redundancy, which was lacking. Well, I think it's redundancy, but it's, I, I prefer to use the word resilience. And yeah, okay. so, much of, so much of the discussion in Texas and elsewhere has been on the, the focus and the spending and the transmission capacity has been focused on decarbonization of the grid and not nearly enough on resilience. And the, and, the, and the reality is Texas came very close to a complete system blackout. I mean, if all if there was a, there were moments there, it's been reported a couple of different places, that the, the system, the entire Texas grid was within a few minutes of shutting down entirely. Well, right. that would have been 
catastrophic failure. And so all this focus on decarbonization, what about resilience? This is the most important network in society, and it's just been kind of accepted, oh, it's going to work out. Well, no, it needs attention and careful attention. Right. And of course, the one of the great ironies is that uh, the uh, Biden team comes to the rescue with what? Diesel generators. So they come to the rescue with oil. Um, it's and, and, and so and this goes to, you know, and this is you know, it's hard because it requires people to follow a continuum of look at decisions that were made and then ultimately the consequences in a moment. But this is what you're getting at is you and what Jason Isaac was getting at. You create these externalities. You you set up uh uh, perverse incentives. So, for example, the subsidies that were allowing wind and solar operators to essentially pay uh, providers to uh, use their power sources as compared to natural gas, and you uh, change the distribution that you're relying on in terms of power source, and then when you have a catastrophic uh, weather event, you could have something catastrophic with the power grid. But sort of those connections to policies at the front end and consequences at the back end are sometimes hard to convey. Well, I think that's right, Dan. And, you know, the oldest maxim in politics is follow the money. Okay, well, follow the money. Where did the money, where did the investment in Texas go? And I think this follows somewhat on Jason Isaac's point and also some points that Alex Epstein has made, as well as Meredith Angwin, who's the author of a terrific book called Shorting the Grid, who really was prescient in, in looking at some of these issues. Follow the money. Where was all the investment in Texas? Well, it was in one was the Cres lines, these uh, uh, competitive resource enterprise zones. All Texas ratepayers pay to pay uh, for the cost of those transmission lines, which were finished, I guess, in 2013, at a cost of many billions of dollars. Well, so ratepayers are effectively subsidized, directly subsidizing transmission for this one form of energy. Well, but what did we get in return? It wasn't reliable power, which is the key here. Robert Bryce, visiting fellow at the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity, host of the Power Hungry podcast, author of A Question of Power, Electricity and the Wealth of Nations, and writer of the documentary Juice, How Electricity Explains the World. Robert, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks, thanks a million, Dan. podcast of the show at danprofshow.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Close the uh, hour with a couple of um, COVID stories. Uh, one is um, sort of the classic, uh, what's become a classic category of COVID stories. Not so much hypocrisy, uh, even when politicians are saying one thing and doing another, but um, the stories, including those stories of a politician's hypocrisy, that indicate what they really believe to be true in contrast to the fear-mongering they do regarding the virus. Uh, this comes to us from uh, Cathay Pacific Airways. Exempting wealthy passengers from wearing masks the Hong Kong-based airliner created a waiver on wearing a mask for first-class and business-class travelers who are reclined in their seats. The new policy, however, does not apply for economy seating. They must keep their masks on at all times. This is the tale of when being a dutiful 
corporate super spreader of the state's agitprop runs right into your bottom line and something has to give. Well, in this case, apparently it's the uh, state's agitprop or being a dutiful super spreader of it. And so, uh, you know, COVID doesn't doesn't, uh, go into first class or business class when you're reclined. But back in economy, you know, you got to protect against COVID, right? I mean, so many examples of these sorts of stories. And that's what I think the real takeaway should be when you see Gavin Newsom at French Laundry or Bill de Blasio at the health club or Lori Lightfoot getting her hair cut. Yes, the I can do what you can't do, that's part of it. But the big part of it is what I really think about the line of bull jive that I'm feeding you. Do I really believe it? Or is it just a way for me to aggrandize myself at the expense of your personal freedoms, household income, child's education, you know, pick uh, all of the above. And uh, these studies that are always coming out, too, about uh, how you can change your life to be more COVID resistant and so on and so forth. Wearing glasses makes you up to three times less likely to catch COVID. This is a study out of India. Uh, people touch their faces 23 times an hour and their eyes three or four times an hour on average, according to these Indian researchers. And uh, touching one's nose and mouth significantly reduced when wearing a face mask properly, but wearing a face mask does not protect the eyes. Yeah. The risk of COVID-19 was two to three times less in the spectacles-wearing population than the population not using spectacles. And uh, this is the uh, profound conclusion that might be due to touching, to less touching and rubbing of eyes while wearing spectacles. It might be due. Um, But, hey, uh, this is how we're going to force everybody to wear glasses while we're at it. Uh, The second mask, hey, if it makes you feel comfortable, wear a second mask. Then it becomes a guideline. Uh, Glasses, you know, if you maybe put your glasses on instead of your contacts, or maybe you don't need glasses, but wear glasses anyway. Goggles would be better, but, you know, If it makes you feel safer, if it makes you feel like you're a bit more insulated, then go ahead and wear the glasses. That'll be a mandate uh, in about the next two weeks. This is Dan Prop. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Uh, we have new proclamations from Lord Master Tony Fauci, a couple uh, that uh, present some good news and some potentially challenging news, depending on your perspective on masks, I suppose. The uh, good news, if you've been vaccinated, you can now hug your mom. I actually uh, prefer, I, I don't really uh, handle my family relations so well, so I appreciate Dr. Fauci coming in and handling them for me. Now, the uh, the less positive news comes yesterday tony fauci on cnn of course with uh, dana bash fielding softballs and suggesting that uh, oh he definitely agrees with president biden that um, we should be back to something resembling normalcy as however it's been redefined or will be by then by the end of this year however he is very possible he could conceive a situation where we would not 
stop wearing masks until well into 2022, which is sort of an odd perspective considering, at least according to Dr. Marty Macri at Johns Hopkins and um, Columbia's Bloomberg School of Public Health, per the 77% drop in COVID cases over the last six weeks, we're tracking for herd immunity by April. Um, so again, the uh, the need to continue to abide all of the uh, newly minted protocols for dealing with the pandemic, even after the combination of natural immunity, infection and survivors of the infection, and va- the vaccinated essentially make the virus de minimis in terms of its public health impact. It's very, very confusing. Um, so to help us try to... Uh, get some clarity. We're pleased to be joined again by our friend, Dr. Joel Zinberg. He's a senior fellow at the Competitive Enterprise Institute in D.C. and an associate clinical professor of surgery at the Mount Sinai Hospital in New York. Dr. Zinberg, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Oh, you're very welcome. So the um, mask wearing that will go into 2022, potentially, even as you have respected public health professionals, just as credentialed as St. Fauci, who are saying uh, we're tracking for herd immunity early spring. Well, look, I've written multiple times over the past few months that I think we're headed for herd immunity earlier than Dr. Fauci had indicated, because you get to herd immunity when people can resist the transmission of the virus. And that's either because they've been naturally infected and they are now immune or because they've received the vaccine. And the CDC and others have indicated that far more people have been actually infected than we have confirmed cases, maybe eight times as many. So if we have 25 to 30 million confirmed cases and you multiply that by eight, you're talking about most of the population has already been exposed and probably immune. So you don't need to vaccinate the entire population to get there. I think we are probably looking at sometime this spring reaching the approximately 70%, 75% of the population having immunity that's necessary to stop the transmission of the virus. So is there a scientific reason why, after herd immunity is achieved, you would uh, still abide mask wearing and six feet apart and so forth? Probably not. You'll have to keep track of how the case counts go and whether they continue to fall. Uh, But, you know, every year we have a flu epidemic and we managed to get through it without widespread social distancing, without mask wearing, because we ultimately reach herd immunity. I mean, to be safe, you should continue mask wearing until it's sort of all clear. It's uncomfortable a little bit, but it's not the worst imposition. But we ought to really be looking very closely at reopening the economy, getting kids back into school in person. uh, And those are things that are far more important than the mask wearing. Well, also in terms of some uh, postmortem on all this at some point, again, going back to Dr. Macri's op-ed in the journal, you know, he does some back-of-the-envelope math with respect to some things we sort of now know or the numbers seem to indicate about uh, natural immunity plus where we are with, you know, one in six Americans being vaccinated at this juncture. And he uh, suggests that we have a population fatality rate of 0.15%, which is uh, approximately the seasonal flu. And so shouldn't there be some difficult questions asked about all the destruction that was wrought And particularly when you have light touch states like Florida outperforming lockdown states like New York and Illinois, 
Shouldn't there be some questions about what exactly it was that new policies that were pursued, the lockdowns, what exactly they produced and what exactly uh, yeah. they cost? You know, I, I've written for months now that you know, the fatality rate, when you consider the true number of infections, not the sort of phony confirmed numbers. In other words, what people don't understand and what's, what's broadcast by the, the media constantly are the number of confirmed cases. Those are the cases that where people have actually gone in, gotten tested, and the test is positive. But not everyone gets tested. And what's been clear for a very long time now is that most cases of COVID are either asymptomatic or the symptoms are ben relatively benign so that people don't even go to get tested. So that's where we come up with the, with the realization that far more people have actually been infected with the virus, uh, but then are, have had confirmed cases. So uh, we've known for a long time that that's the situation. We've known for a long time that the true fatality rate is a lot lower than what has been broadcast based on the confirmed cases. You know, whether or not these severe measures were necessary is a very important question. And, and uh, again, as I say, I've written for a very long time that the lockdown measures, the stay shelter in place measures, the closing all the businesses measures are extremely destructive. And they have their own health effects, which probably in, in many situations outweigh the effects of COVID directly. I want you to uh, react to what he had to say on Friday about what the real issue is and what he's going to do, the corrective action that Governor Cuomo is going to take. We did not aggressively enough take on the misinformation that caused people pain. Uh, and it caused pain for grieving families. And that's what I regret. I'm not going to make that mistake again. Uh, if you're lying to the people of the state of New York, I'm going to call it out. If you are lying in a report I'm going to call it out. If you're lying in a newspaper because you have your own partisan agenda, I'm going to call it out. I said to the people of the state of New York when I was first elected, I'm here to fight for you. That's my job. I was elected attorney general. I said, I will represent you. I will fight for you. Uh, and I will fight as hard as I can for you. Uh, fighting for the people of New York is fighting for the truth for New Yorkers. I'm not, I'm not going to let New Yorkers be lied to. It was a, a communication problem, and he's a declared a war on lying, and so that's going to resolve what occurred. Well, I think if he wants to look for sources of misinformation that misled the public, I think you ought to look in the mirror. Uh, you know, from, for this past year, he has been lauded by the press for his response to the COVID pandemic. He's written about it in a, in, in a book, what a star he is. He's gotten an Emmy for providing, quote unquote, reliable information to the public via TV. But the fact of the matter is that the governor and his associates made a series of disastrous policy mistakes. And Governor Cuomo is known as being a micromanager. Nothing happens in that administration without uh, him overseeing it and without his approval. And now the cover has been blown on a prolonged and concerted effort by his administration to cover up the worst of those mistakes, and that's the March 25th directive by his Department of Health that compelled nursing facilities to admit COVID-19 patients from hospitals, regardless of whether 
they had a confirmed or suspected active COVID infection. There's something else, too, that a hospital bed shortage was self-inflicted, and this is a way underreported aspect of the story. In point of fact, some 20 hospitals have closed in New York City alone over the last two decades, most in low-income communities. Statewide, the number of hospital beds per capita fallen in New York by 13 percent since 2010, according to the Kaiser Family Foundation. And it was because of the state's mismanagement of the Medicaid program, uh, which occurred not exclusively under Cuomo, but including under Cuomo. Yeah, but in, in addition, what, what, what he has failed to acknowledge is that the state had other options. The, they had opened the Javits Convention Center as a, a medical facility. It was underused. There were many, many empty, empty beds. They had the Navy ship Comfort as, as a uh, in, tied up in New York Harbor. It went virtually unused. All those beds were unused. They could have taken in those patients from the nursing from the hospitals instead of putting them back in the nursing homes. But you know, it was like pouring fuel on a forest fire. He is Dr. Joel Zinberg, Senior Fellow at the Competitive Enterprise Institute in D.C., Associate Clinical Professor of Surgery at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York, and as somebody who's been one of the reasonable and some semi-lonely voices in the wilderness over the last year. Dr. Zinberg, we appreciate it. Sure thing, anytime. Who takes every kind of people To make what life's about, yeah It takes every Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Cause they got the beat, the campus beat, the campus beat. Yeah, the campus beat. Yeah, this installment of Campus Beat uh, takes us back to Smith College and uh, Jody Shaw, who is an administrator at Smith College in Northampton, Massachusetts, where she made less annually than is the tuition at Smith College, one of the elite small liberal arts colleges, which no longer deserve that description, liberal arts, because they're the humanities have been destroyed. Uh, she is a graduate of Smith College. She posted a video back in uh, the end of October that we discussed on this show, calling out the critical race theory orthodoxy that is being imposed on the professorate plus the staff plus the students at Smith College. She's sort of uh, frustrated. And uh, I believe I said at the time, well, you can um, put her on the clock because she will not be long for Smith College one way or the other. And uh, unfortunately... And this is why courage is in such short short supply. Uh, She uh, has now been separated from Smith College. Before we get to where she is now and uh, her more recent pronouncement, just a a reminder of uh, her description of what was happening at Smith College and why she chose to take to the YouTube to express herself. I ask that Smith College stop reducing my personhood to a racial category. Stop telling me what I must think and feel about myself because I feel like you do that a lot. I know you do that a lot and I I need you to stop doing that. Stop presuming to know who I am or what my culture is based upon my skin color because you don't know that. You don't know that about anybody except for yourself. Stop asking me to project stereotypes and assumptions onto others based upon their skin color because I feel like that's 
what you asked me to do incessantly (laughs) over and over again for the past three years. And I'm not going to do that. I don't think it's right. Stop telling me young women of color have no power or agency in this world because that's not true. Stop telling me that young white women have power and privilege over everyone else. Equally not true. And both of those narratives that you are teaching to students and trying to convince staff of are very disempowering. And she goes on to explain what what she believes her value is and is not, where it resides and where it doesn't. I'm a human being a valuable member of the Smith College community, or at least I used to think I was, I I don't really feel valuable anymore because I, I don't feel like you value me. I feel like my skin color is the most important thing about me, and that, that doesn't feel good. My value, I believe my value lies in the quality of my work, the goodness of my deeds, the essence of my character, and the fullness of my heart, not my skin color. So this These videos I'm making are really an effort to organize in the workplace for better working conditions. And they're really for staff. Certainly faculty and students can get in touch with me as long as they remember that's what these videos are for. Mm -hmm. Organizing in the workplace, something that the left supports, right? Depending, I guess, on what you're organizing around when it comes to complaints about working conditions. Did she, was she looking for this fight? It really needs to be talked about. And I didn't want to be the one talking about it, but... Smith has engaged in behavior toward me that has pushed me over a line. And I didn't think it was possible for them to push me over that line, but they did. So here I am. And I really want to talk to other staff about this. I've actually already talked to a lot of you about these issues. And one common theme that comes up is why doesn't anybody talk publicly about it? Well, the answer is because we're too afraid not to. So we all kind of just collude in it, keep our heads down, our mouth shut because the consequences for not following the script are so severe. And we know what the consequences are. We've seen the consequences. Is this some uh, right-wing radical who somehow uh, got past uh, Smith's Praetorian Guard? Hardly. Right now, Smith, I don't think you're doing a good job of following the law. (laughs) So I want you to do better. I'm an alum and... This is not a left-right or a red versus blue issue. This is a human issue. And I don't think my political persuasion has anything to do with it, but I'm going to say that I'm a lifelong liberal, in case that helps. Clearly it doesn't. Dear President McCartney, writes Jody Shaw, I'm writing to notify you that effective today, I'm resigning from my position as student support coordinator in the Department of Residence Life at Smith College. It's not been an easy decision as I now face a deeply uncertain future as a divorced mother of two, The economic uncertainty brought about by this resignation will impact my children as well, but I have no choice. The racially hostile environment that the college has subjected me to for the past two and a half years has left me physically and mentally debilitated. I can no longer work in this environment, nor can I remain silent about a matter so central to basic human dignity and freedom. I mentioned she's a graduate of Smith College back in 93, and she recalls those years fondly. Four years were among the best in my life. I was over the moon when years later I had the opportunity to join Smith as a staff member. I love my job. I love being back at Smith. But the climate and my place at the college changed dramatically when the cultural war arrived at our campus when a student accused a white staff member of calling campus security on her because of racial bias. Before even investigating the facts of the incident, the college immediately issued a public apology to the student, placed the employee on leave, announced its intention to create new initiatives, workshops, and so forth. You know the story. In spite of an independent investigation into the incident that found no evidence of racial bias, the college ramped up its initiatives aimed at dismantling the supposed racism that pervades the campus. 
which only served to advance the the narrative that Smith's staff are racist. And um, she gives an example of how this has impacted her. In August 2018, just days before I was to present a library orientation program into which I had poured a tremendous amount of time and effort, and which had previously been approved by my supervisors, I was told I could not proceed with the plan program because it was going to be done in a rap form and because you are white, as my supervisor told me, that could be viewed as cultural appropriation. My supervisor made clear he did not object to a rap in general, nor to the idea of using music to convey orientation information to students. The problem was my skin color. I was up for a full-time position in the library at the time, and I was essentially informed my candidacy for the position was dependent on my ability to reinvent a program to which I had devoted months of time. Humiliated and knowing my candidacy for the full-time position was now dead in the water, I moved him to my current lower-paying position as the student support coordinator in, in residential life. And she goes on to explain how, you know, that's just one example of myriad examples. Every day I watch my colleagues manage student conflict through the lens of race, projecting rigid assumptions and stereotypes on students, thereby reducing them to the color of their skin. I'm asked to do the same, as well as support a curriculum for students that, teachers, that teaches them to project these same stereotypes and assumptions onto themselves and others. I believe such a curriculum is dehumanizing. By the way, she was offered a settlement for her silence as to these complaints that she's outlined uh, both on videos and in this letter, and um, she turned it down. Under the guise of racial progress, Smith College has created a racially hostile environment in which individual acts of discrimination and hostility flourish. In this environment, people's worth as human beings and the degree to which they deserve to be treated with dignity and respect is also determined by the color of their skin. I wanted to change things at Smith. I hope by that bringing internal complaint, I could somehow get the administration to see that their capitulation of critical race orthodoxy was causing real measurable harm. When that failed, I hoped, drawing public, I hoped that drawing public attention to these problems would finally awaken the administration to this reality. I have come to conclude, however, that the college is so deeply committed to this toxic ideology that the only way for me to escape the racially hostile climate is to resign. My children's future, she closes her letter with, and indeed our collective future as a free nation depends on people having the courage to stand up to this dangerous and divisive ideology, no matter the cost, and Jody Shaw is paying a price and uh, is a, a living example of the kind of courage that is required in these times. But how many will follow that living example? Well, that's a question for us all to ask, isn't it? This is Dan Brock. I can call you Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. I've got uh, our mask campaign slogan. Well, this is why I lead the messaging session, and we rely on our talented listeners to contribute, because it was starting to starting to form with with forced unity with conformity and some of the other suggestions from our callers i think i've got it it's it's more simple than even placebo which is very good my previous offering the mask slogan to unprogram the covid cultists is don't think follow is that elegant don't think period follow period I like it. I'm going to get uh, a few hundred made up and we're going to start distributing them because we, we, this has to be, and maybe we should all like dress like Slim Shady. So it's like a whole group. We all wear blue jeans and a white t-shirt like Eminem back in the day. So that we're, you know, the, the, the whole army of people trying to bring our fellow Americans back to rationality. 
Um, speaking of which, it's also our job to drive home the point of what so many of these even unpaid local politicians, which is what so many of them become when they ascend to the heights of a school board. This rather remarkable Zoom call that featured school board members for Oakley Union Elementary School Board in California. This is uh, what they had to say when they thought that their Zoom call was on private. This is what they had to say about parents who were complaining about pedestrian matters like their kids' education. I could, I really, I honestly don't care about that part, but you know what? Are we alone? Yeah. <laughs> if you're going to call me out, I'm going to f*** you up. <laughs> That's just me. <laughs> you know, they forget that there's real people on the other side of those those letters that they're writing. Yes. We're real community members. We have kids or have known kids that have gone to these schools. Right. We have an invested interest in this process, and they don't know what we right. do behind the scenes. And it's really unfortunate exactly. that they want to pick on us because right. they want their babysitters back. Right. 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 I agree, and it's fine. It's just it, I, I just need to get you know, up. You know, I, I I totally hear that because uh, my brother had a, a delivery. Yeah, my brother had a delivery service for medical marijuana. The high clientele were parents with their kids in school. <laughs> <laughs> Laura Lanier, just FYI, you guys have the meeting. Oh, we have the meeting open to the public right now. Uh-oh. Uh-uh. That's oh. what Laura just said. Oh, no. Great. Oh, boy. Well, what happened when this got out that they think all the parents in their district are potheads who want somebody else to babysit their kid is that all those board members you just heard, the four of them resigned. There's a couple other things. One is this idea, you know, you don't know what we're doing behind the scenes. I'll tell you what. No, no, no. Tell me what you're doing behind the scenes. What, you don't understand what we go through. Communicate it. Is it a secret? You're a school board member. You're an elected official. Tell me everything you're doing and the basis for it. I'm, I'm willing to listen. What do you got? Defend your position. You don't get to say, this is my position, and you don't understand it, so I'm not going to explain it, No, <laughs> which is the position they take. They're the aggrieved party. They're, they're the besieged party. I'm doing so much. You just don't see it. You don't understand it. Well, lay it bare for all to see. We're here. You got an audience. That's number one. Number two, the whole babysitter thing. Uh, good observation from uh, Brown University's Emily Oster. Uh, school is serving two roles. It is a child care solution, and it is teaching people to learn. Uh, the idea of, you know, uh, we're not babysitters. Actually, you are in part, and there's nothing wrong with that. She, she goes on to say, I found it a little disrespect to people. What's wrong with having part of your job be child care? That's a totally reasonable job. But the other thing is it's not really fair to say to parents, can't you take care of your own kid when you told me I have to put my kid in school eight hours a day? That's the law. It's a law that my kid has to be in school. And now you're telling me that the expectation should also be that I'm free for all that time, even though I'm legally required to not have my kid here. So it's odd that we've set up this whole system in which people are required to go to school and then we're to be like, well, school's not your child care. Actually, you told me it has to be my child care under force of law, didn't you? It's a great point she brings up. But that is, that is the 
affliction of those who believe they are on some pedestal because they are your temporary representative. And you see it manifest itself, obviously, at the highest levels of public office. But but again, if you pay attention to what's going on in your village or your school district, you will find that same uh, absolutely you will find that same attitude and some of that same behavior, not everywhere and not by all the members, but you'll find it too often present. And this is why and, and this is why there's a disconnect. This is why there's a disconnect between what you think is happening and what is actually happening, what you, who you thought was in control of your kid's education and who actually is. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. I want to uh, reference uh, something I have previously, but I think it bears repeating. This uh, observation from a physicist who listens to the show about science education, basically from K through post-secondary. Uh, he writes, science education has become little more than a computer-generated magic show intermixed with some live tricks. The underlying theory is sometimes taught and always absent the hands-on experience of working with equipment and the errors of measurement. Science is taught as absolute knowledge rather than as a process of theory and measurement and debate. Uh, yeah, I think that's a, a fairly tidy summary of where science is as it is um, just even the word itself is used as some sort of magic incantation that uh, conveys absolute knowledge and absolute truth by whoever says, I'm just following the science, which has become almost a punchline during the pandemic. And uh, this brings me to a very uh, good piece in the Wall Street Journal uh, by a reporter, journalist over at realclearinvestigations.com, Dateline Duke University. And um, this uh, statement that we uh, talked about when it was first issued by Duke University's president, this is last year, Vincent Price, and the statement was not a real thriller, Ohio, but it was uh, regarding this uh, poisonous uh, ideology of anti-racism. And uh, our next guest uh, had a stimulating conversation with a professor there, John Stadden, about that statement and uh, folded in science to it. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by J. Peter Zane. He's a columnist at realclearpolitics.com and an editor at realclearinvestigations.com. Mr. Zane, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Oh, thank you for having me. I, I appreciate it. Um, so, John's views are getting some attention. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so so um, give us a bit of, uh, of the uh, reaction that uh, Professor, uh, I, I hope I'm pronouncing his name right, Professor Stadden had. Sure, John Stadden. Stadden had to uh, that uh, Duke University president's missive about, uh, you know, as a white person, I can't understand the travails of non-white people and so on and so forth. Sort of a, an extended apology, which is what the anti-racist movement on college campuses and everywhere else demands. Well, I think that the uh, John has for years, as uh, you know, I detail in my uh, piece in the Wall Street Journal, uh, has uh, pushed back on uh, his colleagues and his colleagues' use of unscientific terms in the name of science or the use of unverifiable standards for uh, communication and discussion. And so I think his main critique of 
Vincent Price's statement was that when you start getting into, I can't understand where you're coming from, I can't understand your lived experience, it's hard for somebody else to then know how to respond to you. Um, and it becomes in some ways a technique to force you to comply with them. I accept that I, I'm forced to accept the truth of what you're saying, even though I can't begin to understand it. And therefore, uh, I must change my behavior in response to you. Um, the first person I saw make that point uh, was uh, Jordan Peterson with the uh, uh, trans pronouns. And there was a YouTube video of him talking to uh, some young woman. And as far as I can tell, Jordan Peterson had uh, no problem uh, in most instances, and calling people by the pronoun that they chose, but he didn't want to be forced to for uh, reasons that he couldn't completely embrace and understand. And I think that that's one of the aspects of the uh, price statement, and Stadden's response to it is, is that the whole Western tradition that grew out of centuries of, or millennia even, of super brilliant people uh, discussing these things, debating these things, trying to have a make a good faith effort to figure out how we can all communicate with each other according to standards that are clear and uh, and, and sensible and defensible, um, is now being pushed aside into the realm of uh, emotion and intuition and lived experience, which has also obviously been part of uh, the Western tradition from Romanticism and Nietzsche and all that. But, but in other words, that has not been the primary way. When we are, it may be a primary way in how we're living, how we understand our whole, our own lives, emotion, intuition, our assumptions, and whatever. But when we're in the public sphere. Uh, scholarship in the university and science, uh, you know, one of the reasons they uh, came about and evolved the way they did was to provide us tools to make sense of what other people are saying so we can all get on the same page so that we can all work together and, and make a better world using common language and common understanding. Well, that's what uh, uh, Harvard uh, epidemiologist Martin Kaldorf recently said. You know, after a few hundred years, it appears the Enlightenment is over. And um, something that uh, Stadden said uh, in, in your piece, you know, is sort of consistent with that, the idea that um, he writes, he said, quote, I'm quoting him, many social scientists have difficulty separating facts from faith. And so it's it's the the, the bitter twist of irony, right? Uh, this is supposed to be science is based on reason and reasoning and, and the, the, the scientific method. But uh, science has become or, you know, sort of politics under the rubric of science has become little more than an expression of one's faith. Yes. And, you know, obviously, science is a history of uh, mistakes. Um, and bad ideas, and, uh, you know, we know that they had figured out where cholera came from, and uh, still people resisted that it was from, uh, carried in the water because they had other ideas. Uh, we know that James Garfield probably died because his surgeon uh, put his dirty fingers in his uh, wound, his bullet wound, even though he knew that uh, at that time we knew about uh, uh, cleaning the wounds and the, the possibilities of infection. Um, a guy I wrote a book with uh, years ago, Adrian Bejan, another Duke professor, he told me a Niels Bohr quote, which was, uh, science advances one funeral at a time. So it, it's not that people haven't had wrong ideas in the past uh, or that people have uh, resisted uh, 
you know, the advance of science and a better evidence uh, against their own ideas. I think you could probably say that's one of the things that's happened with climate change to some extent is that uh, you have so many people whose careers are invested in one point of view that they have to shut down all the other ones. And it doesn't mean that they're wrong about their ideas, but they uh, don't want to make room for uh, things that might complicate well, right, and that seems to me the key. When we come back with RealClearPolitics.com's J. Peter Zaid, I want to uh, talk a little bit more about uh, peer review and the exploration for truth in academia to the extent it still exists. More with J. Peter Zaid right after this. Show.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We're speaking with RealClearPolitics.com's J. Peter Zane. He's uh, had a good piece in the Wall Street Journal on the state of science and the exploration of truth on college campuses and uh, whether or not we're at the end of the Enlightenment. I want to talk about uh, peer review in the context of this conversation, Peter. If you're unwilling to submit your argument or your work product to professional review, I mean, is that not the biggest tell of all? Right. Well, I think what uh, Stadden is also pointing out is that uh, these, these people in these sciences, social sciences in particular, they do... Uh, submit their work to peer review, but it's to a mafia of yes, other right. people yes. working in. And that's why he pointed out that there are, there are now 56 sections of the American Psychological Association and 53 of the Sociology Association. So you have all these sub-disciplines. It's not just like, oh, here's sociology, here's psychology. It's, you know, this tiny little group, this tiny little group. And they all review each other's work um, and uh, pass it along. Um, and so I think that then these mafias, uh, self-sustaining groups, uh, become a problem. I think well, politically yeah. – oh, go ahead. No, well, I was just going to say, but but I mean, but now you have the, the position. I mean, right, when I say review, I, I mean criticism, not just right. in echo chamber and professional criticism, you know, substantive cr- critique. Um, but 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 you have the position of, of Ibram Kendi since uh, the, the president's – Duke president's letter was an, about anti-racism, that, that – philosophical uh, sub-discipline, I guess now. Uh, Ibram Kendi, his position is, I I will not entertain people who disagree with me because to do that is to perpetuate racism. (laughs) I mean, so, I mean, talk about a a convenient philosophy where to to challenge anybody who might be critical is to, you know, indulge the thing I'm trying to fight so I won't do it. The left, in particular has become expert at a series of silencing techniques so that they delegitimize uh, your opportunity to say anything. Um, and they do it on a hundred levels. And uh, his work, which is shoddy at best and completely incoherent at worst. Um, one thing I think that what a really interesting uh, insight, Douglas Murray's book, uh, Gosh, Mad, the madness of crowds or some, you know, something you like that. Yeah. He pointed out one of the things about, you know, all of this stuff is rooted uh, in, to some extent in Marxism. And he said one of the things you have to understand is that Marxists don't have a problem with contradiction. 
Mm. And so, so an example from Ibram Kendi would be race is a social construct. It's not real. It's just invented. But we must make it the primary way that we define ourselves and interact with the world around us because the world has made it so important. So I know it's all a fantasy made up and it's, and it's, a, it's not a description of reality, but because it is used to define me, I'm going to completely embrace it. Uh, J. Peter Zane, columnist at RealClearPolitics.com, editor at RealClearInvestigations.com. Thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Please follow us at danproftshow.com and on social media at danproftshow. I, for one, need Joe Biden's riff on China policy translated. This is what he offered with uh, Gloria Vanderbilt's kid at his town hall last week. It has always been the time when China has been victimized by the outer world is when they haven't been unified at home. So the central, to vastly overstated, the central principle of Xi Jinping is that there must be a united, tightly controlled China. And he uses his rationale for the things he does based on that. I point out, Tim, no American president can be sustained as a president if he doesn't reflect the values of the United States. And so the idea, I'm not going to speak out against what he's doing in Hong Kong, what he's doing with the Uyghurs in western mountains of of, uh, China and Taiwan trying to end the one China policy by making it forceful. I I said, and by the way, he said he... He gets it. Culturally, there are different norms at each country, and they, their leaders are expected to follow. But my point was that when I came back from meeting with him and traveling 17,000 miles with him, when I was vice president, he was the vice president. That's how I got to know him so well, at the request of President Hu, not a joke, his predecessor, President Hu, and President Obama wanted us to get to know one another because he was going to be the president. And I came back and said they're going to end their their one-child policy because they're so xenophobic, they won't let anybody else in, and more people are retired than working. How can they sustain economic growth when more people are retired? So I appreciate that uh, President Biden resisted the temptation to do an Abbott and Costello routine in referencing previous President Hu, but it seems to me his position is... You know, we both have to do our performance art. I recite the standard talking points from the American perspective, and you recite the standard points from the Chinese communist perspective. You go about your business and we go about ours. That's been the approach pre-Trump to China for the better part of five decades. Well, that approach hasn't worked other than to aggrandize China. And I'm very interested to hear how concerned Joe Biden is about President Xi maintaining a at least facade of unity in China as its dictator. I mean, it's just a bizarre, rambling, nonsensical word dump in lieu of an actual particular policy with respect to Chinese expansionism, which he recognized 
in his remarks, he recognized China is expansionist. It wants to be the unitary global power, but he doesn't seem to have any particular idea what to do about that. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Lieutenant Colonel Jim Carafano for our weekly conversation. He is the VP of the Catherine and Shelby Cullum Davis Institute for International Studies at the Heritage Foundation, author of books including Wiki at War and Private Sector Public Wars. Jim, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks to be with you. Your translation of what President Biden had to say about China, for starters. It reminded me of actually Donald Trump's first press conference on Russia. When I love the words hot mess because that was exactly what everybody took away from that is you're supposed to explaining to us what you're doing and it's, it's completely unclear. And what we found is after Trump's incredibly disastrous press conference, his Russia policy was actually incredibly strong. And a lot of the stability in Western Europe the last four years is attributable. A friend of mine described it as we're getting the dance of the seven veils. What it sounds like, they want to follow the playbook under Obama, which was we need to look for areas to cooperate and if we have to challenge them, we will. The problem with that policy, if that is indeed the policy we're going back to, is on every area of crucial interest to the U.S., China's on the opposite side. So you're going to cooperate on what? If you don't overtly challenge them, they and the rest of the world, by the way, actually see that as acquiescing to China. That's how we got where we were in the South China Sea. So they've been kind of all over the place. They ran some thought ups, these you know, freedom of navigation operations in the South China Sea, which is great. They didn't say much about it, which is bad. They've made reassurances on Taiwan and complaints about Taiwan, which is great. They didn't promote that, which is bad. They've actually put out statements on Hong Kong. They put out statements on the Uyghur, but they put out statements on Burma. But they still haven't responded to Burma yet, and the coup by the generals, and, and, and Burma's a client state of China. We've designated the Uyghur activities by China as a genocide. That's an official U.S. policy. The President of the United States said he's not going to talk about genocide, which is shocking. And this government still hasn't done anything about the genocide designation. So all I can reflect on is for a guy who ran for president and was just bemoaning the fact that Trump was coddling dictators, which he wasn't, that speech to the American people, that you know, conversation to the American people, kind of sounded like he was coddling dictators. And it wasn't a meeting at the United Nations. It wasn't a meeting with the State Department. It was a town hall with the American people telling them what you're doing with the greatest foreign policy challenge of this generation. And you basically gave them kind of oatmeal. So here's the thing. Um, a, a podcaster that I uh, listen to sometimes uh, reminded me of these facts, which is really helpful because – you know, so much of this, uh, so the media has no institutional memory. Most of the political class doesn't either. I know you do. And so the question is, you know, where is China trying to exploit the United States right now? He reminded me in 2010, the Department of Defense found thousands of its computer servers sending military network data to China, the result of code hidden in chips that handled the machine's startup process. That's in 2010. In 2014, Intel discovered that an elite Chinese hacking group breached its network through a single server that downloaded malware from a supplier's update site. And in 2015, the FBI warned multiple companies that Chinese operatives had concealed an extra chip loaded with backdoor code in one manufacturer's servers. And so, you know, we talk about things like intellectual piracy in present day. Well, 
we're, we're focused on intellectual piracy when that has been going on for eons. Now, perhaps because we haven't sufficiently addressed it, I understand that. But it also precludes some of us, I think, from thinking in real time and prospectively of what China's next gambit with respect to compromising America is. And one suggestion, as they're trying to fashion themselves a white knight around the developing world by distributing their version of the COVID vaccine, is that it would be something with respect to uh, vaccine distribution or vaccine coding, even with respect to some of the big pharma vaccine producers. And that could be compromised in, in some material way, biological warfare. Uh, what, what do you have to say about sort of that whole 10 year perspective bringing us to present? All you have to do is actually read what the Chinese said. And for many years, they've said that they plan on being the world's information superpower and sucking up all the world's information. And then through the combination of artificial intelligence and quantum computing, essentially being to manipulate that information to do everything they want, which is you use your imagination and the range of activities. And the Chinese are not close to any of that. And there's nothing ethically or morally or legally that prevents them from exploiting that information in any way possible. 10 years ago, 15 years ago, when we read that stuff, that was an aspiration. Today, these are operational capabilities that we're putting in place. China is a present danger. And what we're not hearing from the President of the United States is how China is a present danger. And I get that it's a new team. They're on board. They're focusing on, on domestic policy and everything else. But having leaving the impression of, we don't have a plan for China, that just makes the entire world nervous, and it helps the Chinese out a lot. Look, so the President famously just gave a speech at the Munich Security Conference, and he said, I want to work with Europe on China. You know what Europe said? No, thanks. I would yeah. be hitting the panic button at this point, you know? It's something, so so the, uh, another uh, enemy of the United States that um, uh, perhaps is making the rest of the world nervous in terms of the Biden approach, Iran. The Biden administration says it wants to return to the 2015 nuclear deal and then negotiate a follow-on agreement, one problem, a la Europe with respect to China. Iran doesn't want to. <laughs> Iran, Iran just wants to go to the 2015 deal, get uh, their $5 billion in IMF loans unfrozen. And again, you know, the administration is kind of leading with concessions. So lifting the terrorist designation on the Houthis and cutting off aid to Saudi Arabia, that's giving a sweetener to Iran. But this is the problem, I think, with all the, is this is the administration's tendency, which is to follow the kind of Obama playbook, which is this, let's lead by, you know, showing our friendly face to these adversaries. You know, under Obama, people interpreted that as weakness, and they took advantage of us. And, you know, essentially, you're going back to a failed playbook. I mean, that's what we see so far. Even Russia, where the administration came into office, and the first thing they did was castigate Trump about the failure to respond to solar winds. And we're still putting the package together of how we're going to respond on solar winds. I mean, this would be like, you know, Pearl Harbor having on December 8th. And then in February, the president of the United States says, um, you know, we're still putting a process together. So they've got all these processes ongoing and everything. And they're doing all this backdoor brilliant diplomacy. But, but it just sounds it's just terribly out of tune for the world in which we are. Hate Trump, fine. Hate the orange hair. Hate the tweeting and everything else. He led with a sledgehammer, but that got China's attention, Iran's attention, North Korea's attention, Russia's attention. The, the Biden team so far is kind of flicking their fingers at guys who are throwing sledgehammers. And, and you know, maybe, maybe they're brilliant, and we just don't give them all enough credit for their brilliance. But they didn't work before, and I haven't seen any early signs that it's going to work. He is Lieutenant Colonel Jim Carafano, Vice President of the Catherine and Shelby Cullum Davis Institute for International Studies at the Heritage Foundation. Jim, thanks as always. Thanks for having me.
good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. So many nuggets from uh, St. Andrew of COVID-19's presser on Friday on a range of topics, not just his uh, damage control on the nursing home scandal cover-up. Good old Andy changing his tune. Different guy than uh, last year on reopening the economy, on in-person learning in schools. Local governments can vaccinate the teachers, but the students deserve in-class teaching. This remote learning is a poor substitute for in-class teaching. Remote learning is a poor substitute for in-class teaching. Wow, who would have thunk that? Except uh, people like me and so many of our guests who are steeped in the education of young people oh, that, we've discussed, that we've discussed this topic with over the last year. And now uh, the Johnny-come-latelys want you to forget everything that has transpired up until this point. But still, for some, it's not enough. It's not enough to acknowledge that fact uh, in terms of getting kids back in school because now try to follow this logic. Katie Porter, who's a single mom, this was played up in her little star turn at CNN. Single mom, she's a congresswoman from California. Uh, She wants the kids back to school, but we can't send them back to school until we accommodate for how far they've fallen behind from not being in school. Do you follow? It's about what's going to happen when they do all go back to school. And that's where Senator Michael Bennett from Colorado and I have authored a letter to the Department of Education pointing out to them that we can't just put kids back in school as if their learning and social and emotional development has not been severely interrupted. And this problem is particularly acute with regard to math and science education. So it's a workforce issue and a workforce development issue as well. Oh, sure it is. Something else uh you know, the the bane of uh, civilization conservatives like me have been talking about since these uh, unprecedented lockdown policies. Uh, now we're hearing from politicians who are wholly owned subsidiaries of the teachers unions about the negative effects of keeping kids out of school, uh, about remote learning versus in-person learning. And we've moved away from the need to uh, you know, completely redo the HVAC system in every schoolhouse in America to get kids back to school to now saying we these policies have left kids behind, put them behind. We knew that since the spring study after study. But uh, we did it for the better part of a year anyway. We the lockdown politicians did the teachers unions did. And now they're circling back to say this damage that was caused by somebody. They won't know say who. Well, that needs to be addressed before kids can get back into school. To help us with this logic, we're pleased to be joined by Kyle Salmon, lawyer from Pennsylvania, senior contributor to The Federalist and co-host of the Conservative Minds podcast. Kyle, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Sure. Thanks for having me on. So I'm, I'm, I'm struggling to you know, follow the logical thread being offered by the left these days when it comes to uh, educating children and getting them back into school. They, they do want it. Of course they want it, but it's got to be safe. And now it's not even about teacher safety anymore. Now it's about trying to get them up to speed for the education they haven't received over the last year. Yeah, that one baffled me. I mean, I, I saw that Katie Porter comment, and it I don't know what she wants to happen. I mean, if, if she thinks they're falling behind by not being in school, then it seems to me the answer would be get back in school. And But not that, until they're caught up. Right, and... <laughs> 
But how is that going to happen? I mean, she plays up, you know, she's a single mother, her kids weren't home, but a, a congresswoman can afford, uh, you know, uh, you know, in-home child care. They can afford a lot of things that most people can't. And, you know, her kids might be doing all right, but everybody else's kids who don't have the options, who only can, you know, only can afford public school, what are they supposed to do? Just keep falling farther behind? I, I don't, I don't know where I don't know what the way out is under that scenario. Uh, and you've also written about how uh, the left is normally uh, want to point to Europe and say we should be more like them, um, but not when it comes to how long their kids have been back in school. The, I'm talking about European families, Western European families uh, in in two dozens of countries who've been in school, in person learning, some five days a week since the fall. Yeah, that's what I looked at in my article uh, with Federalist last week. It, um, most of them have been open since September, every day, you know, five days a week, full schooling. And, you know, they take the precautions. They may wear masks, they distance the desks, they wash hands more often. But it's been fine. Um, New York Times even reported this a couple of months ago about France, that of uh, all the kids who were back in school, just 0.06% of them tested positive for covid and that's a way lower rate than the national rate. And there's also no evidence that it even spreads in school. You know, it's not, it's not like this. And it's not like Europe is being reckless about this. They're, they studied the facts. They looked at who transmission rates are, are more likely to affect. And they saw that schools were safe. And they had been safe. And, uh, and now they've been in there five months. And they're still safe. Is there any explanation, do you think, for the... Um situation in so many school districts, particularly the big urban ones in this country, other than just uh, people didn't appreciate just how much command control the teachers unions have over those schools, and they will dictate the terms of their working conditions and take every opportunity to upgrade the uh, terms of those working conditions when uh, one presents itself. Yeah, I think a lot of people didn't realize how, yeah, I think they were buying what the teachers union were were selling over the years was that they presented themselves as in it for the kids. It's all about the kids. But I, I don't think that's the way any uh, labor unions organize. They're, the point of a union is to represent the members. And that's what they're doing. And they're doing, I guess, from their point of view, a great job of it. But it's, I think it's not just the unionization, because, you know, France has teachers unions, too, as right. a lot of European countries. I think what it is is that our politicians just are unwilling to compromise when it comes to the unions. And a lot of European politicians who are Historically, more pro-union, more pro-left, you know, left-leaning, big state. They still were taking the parents and the teacher and the uh, students' interests into account way more than ours were, and that's that's the that's not what you'd expect if you just had this uh, view of Europe as like us but more left. But they actually are making some hard choices over there, and it's it's worked out great. Their kids are back in school, most of them since September, um, some even longer. I wonder if, if here also the reason that teachers unions can get away with what they maybe aren't getting away with in Western Europe, um, I can't imagine their politicians are particularly more courageous than ours. But we have these other institutions that are supposed to you know, present some, some uh, somewhat of an adversarial process so that you have real representation of families' interests. So school boards, the superintendent, some of these other local controlling bodies and through elections – and what's happened in so many school districts, unbeknownst to many of these families that are supposed to be represented, their kids educated, 
is that the teachers union has captured the school board, has captured the superintendent. So it looks like an institution that has competing interests. So there's some balance, you know, negotiation and so forth really is a, a situation that's dominated by the, the, the union, but it's dominated by one of those, uh, those players. I, I think that's absolutely right. I, I think in most, most circumstances where there's unionized labor, you know, in a private business, the, the party on the other side of the negotiating table really is adverse to their interests, you know, and, and you know, the, the owner of a factory looks at things a lot differently than the uh, head of a school board. In, you know, in a private situation, you might see these two forces really are competing against each other, and then they come to an agreement in the middle, and it's, you know, it's a compromise that works for everybody. That's exactly what happens. Kyle Salmon, lawyer from Pennsylvania, senior contributor to The Federalist, Federalist.com, co-host of the Conservative Minds podcast. Check out his piece, which I'll tweet out. Leftists want America to be like Europe, except on reopening schools. Kyle, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. The Purge, Eastside Community School in New York, uh, sent uh, this to white parents, Tool for Action, which uh, tells them they must become white traders, quote-unquote, and then advocate for full white abolition, quote-unquote. This is, as Chris Rufo, who's been on this critical race theory stuff, like a few others, maybe uh, James Lindsay along with him, this is the new language of public education. What you find in public education, you quickly find in C-suites in corporate America. The uh, white identity dial, if you will, goes all the way from white supremacist on the one end to white abolitionist on the other. White trader is uh, what you must become right before you graduate into the sanctified space of white abolitionist. The uh, white trader actively refuses complicity, names what's going on. Intention is to subvert white authority and tell the truth at whatever the cost. Need them to dismantle institutions. And then the white abolitionist changes institutions, dismantling whiteness and not allowing whiteness to reassert itself. This is the scholarship that's also in quotation marks of these race hustlers that have permeated every civic and cultural institution in America. So how does that manifest itself in corporate America? Oh, um, this PowerPoint from a whistleblower at Coca-Cola that uh, compels employees to be less white. Oh, they've got a slide for that. To be less white is to be less oppressive, be less arrogant, be less certain, be less defensive, be less ignorant, be more humble, listen, believe, break with apathy, break with white solidarity. That must be a comfortable place to be an employee uh, who happens to be white. And that's the case everywhere. Disney made uh, headlines again over the weekend because they uh, have a disclaimer connected to their old episodes of The Muppet Show. The disclaimer reads, This program includes negative depictions and or mistreatment of people or cultures. These stereotypes are wrong then and are wrong now. Rather than remove this content, we want to acknowledge its harmful impact, learn from it, and spark conversation to create a more inclusive future together. Yes, there needs to be a future in America where puppets are inclusive. 
well, right, but you know, this is a, about dismantling whiteness, and of course, the Swedish chef represents whiteness. He, so there's okay to sort of parody in a hyperbolic fashion his uh, Swedish representation, I suppose. If you haven't experienced it yet, you will. For more on uh, this, we're pleased to be joined by Stephen Sokup. He's a senior commentator, vice president, and publisher of the Political Forum. He has a book out, The Dictatorship of Woke Capital, How Political Correctness Captured Big Business, Coca-Cola, perhaps a case study. Stephen Sokup, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me. Per what uh, you have written about, the incidents regarding The Muppet Show or Coca-Cola come as no surprise to you, I'm certain. No, they don't. The politically correct action against American uh, consumers and employees uh, has been going on for quite some time. Well, and so, but, but so where does it go? I mean, you know, there have been some backlashes in some of these, in, within some of these institutions. For example, you have uh, Title IX cases at the collegiate level where now the person or the group being discriminated against are men or white people, and they're using Title IX to sort of give those who are you know, race and gender obsessed a little bit of taste of their own medicine when it comes to discrimination by category. Is there any backlash going on in corporate America? And if there isn't, w what form could it take? Unfortunately, uh, actually, corporate America is moving uh, the opposite direction. Not only is there not any significant backlash, in fact, corporate America is moving further and further into a more practical and effective use of you know, what we would call woke capital to affect change within uh, the global community. Uh, so it's actually moving in, in, in the opposite direction. And, and where does it end? It's hard to say at this point. In my book, The Dictatorship of Woke Capital, I, I, I identify three um, forms of pressure uh, on corporate America. One is from the bottom up, uh, which is employees insist that their companies behave a certain way. A uh, second is from the top down, which I think you're seeing from uh, Coca-Cola and Disney over the weekend, which is that the people who occupy uh, leadership positions are pressuring the company to be more overtly politically correct. And the third, uh, which is the primary focus of the book, is from the outside in, which is all of the pressure coming from outside uh, of these corporations uh, to force them to behave in a certain way uh, to force them to adopt certain moral principles, to force them to behave uh, so that they can uh, achieve different social ends as opposed to their uh, traditional business ends. When we come back with the political forum, Stephen Sokup, I want to continue talking about big tech's influence here when it comes to this censorious corporate culture. More with Stephen Sokup right after this. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We're speaking with the political forum, Stephen Sokup. But before the break, we're talking about the purge and corporate America. 
And uh, I'm curious, uh, how much of this is the uh, the big tech tail wagging the Fortune 1000s, you know, what, what wagging the, the Fortune 1000 dog? In other words, you see uh, Facebook and Twitter being more aggressive, uh, YouTube and, and Google, obviously, as well, being more aggressive with uh, censorship. And how much of that is saying, well, you know, these are the cultural mavens and we need access to their communication channels. We don't want to run afoul of you know, their political mores. And so we're going to essentially follow the corporate culture of those big tech companies. Well, a lot of it is, is in fact, as you say, uh, being directed by uh, big tech. But a lot of it is also coming from the finance industry. Yeah. Um, if you look at, for example, BlackRock, which is the largest asset management firm in the world with almost $9 trillion in assets under management, um, for the past two years, uh, its CEO, Larry Fink, has sent a letter to, uh, to clients and to CEOs telling them that their primary uh, responsibility uh, will be to um, focus on sustainability, which is code for climate change, uh, as their primary uh, investment uh, guidance. And so they in expect for all companies to disclose any and all possible information about what they're doing with respect to climate change and how they're uh, building their businesses around climate change and uh, how they're preparing for this you know, to, pre to prevent this uh, catastrophe. Uh, and if they do not uh, cooperate with what BlackRock demands, then BlackRock will use its leverage to uh, change boards of directors, to change management, to change uh, the bylaws of the corporations. Uh, BlackRock has an enormous amount of influence, and uh, with, together with the other two large passive investment firms, State Street and Vanguard, uh, it can essentially impose its will on corporations, and that's what they're doing. Yeah, I mean, this is this is just this is one big blob. And it's, so one institution or institution or, or sector leader, uh, you know, uh, essentially um, serves the other. They sort of meld all together. And that uh, includes uh, we can't leave out the federal government. The um, nominee, the Biden nominee for the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, a gentleman named Rohit Chopra, uh, who is a Elizabeth Warren protege has come up with an idea, too, a paper he opened, uh, he uh, authored a, a couple of years ago for a think tank, for a public integrity protection agency. Uh, the director would serve uh, for 10 years, subject to removal proceedings similar to that of a federal judge, so basically like they envision for the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, untouchable by the elected branches. And uh, it would regulate political activities, uh, restrictions on advocacy declaring that, for example, the use of think tanks and other nonprofit organizations to further the economic interests of its benefactors through policy research should be impermissible. Um, and it would uh, look at issue-based nonprofits, progressive or conservative, to identify whether they're uh, advancing someone's interests, which, of course, they always are. And if they are, then they could be subject to federal regulation. Uh, so so you have that culture coming potentially from the federal government. I mean, that's just an idea form right now, but it gives you an insight into the perspective and the mind's eye of these regulators at the highest levels of the federal government, combined with what you're getting from some of the most powerful CEOs in finance and tech. 
and you, you know, it sort of goes back to the question I asked previously. How, how does this all end other than badly, like in some sort of uh, Chinese communist authoritarian form of, of societal organization? Well, I, I certainly think we're moving to a more authoritarian state, and, and that's, that's the, the point of all of this, is um, in the book I trace the history of the uh, anti-democratic nature uh, of um, administration, both public administration and business administration, uh, over the last probably century and a half. Uh, to arrive at the point today where we have not just government, but as you say, big tech and uh, big finance uh, and big entertainment, all intending to do big things, to change the way the world works, and to go around the people in order to do so. Um, that's the whole nature of this, is it, it's anti-democratic. It is intended to usurp the power of the people and to impose these uh, political beliefs from the top down uh, against the will of the people. So it, clearly it, it's authoritarian by nature. Um, I, I think before we end up in a totalitarian uh, type state, however, we're, we'll probably see a, a natural uh, backlash in the finance community um, where, uh, you know, any type of investment uh, that misallocates capital eventually uh, creates a problem, and allocating capital specifically based on social goals is clearly a misallocation of capital, and it will eventually uh, cause problems. Um, and uh, while yeah, will that backlash problems, be big enough and soon enough? Is the question. Well, I, I think the backlash will be big enough, and it will be soon enough. But unfortunately, it's going to cost a lot of ordinary people uh, a lot of money. Uh, when I say BlackRock has $9 trillion in assets under management they're, that they're leveraging, that, that money isn't Larry Fink's. That money isn't, isn't BlackRock's. That money is yours and mine and everybody who, uh, who invests or has a 401K or an IRA. Um, so I, I think that there, there are hard times coming. Um, uh, but eventually I think there will be a backlash against this. Um, and you know, the, the question is just going to be how much will it cost us. He is Stephen Sokup, uh, senior commentator, vice president, and publisher of the Political Forum. Check out his new book, The Dictatorship of Woke Capital, How Political Correctness Captured Big Business. Stephen Sokup, thanks for joining us. Good luck with the book. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. Show.com. Welcome back to the show to uh, close it out on this installment that uh, uh, remarkable footage of the uh, United Airlines 
flight over Denver that lost its engine and bits of the engine fell off into, you know, yards around the greater Denver area. Thankfully, no one was hurt. But uh, that engine on fire as you're as you're uh, watching, that was something. And now, of course, the news out that uh, FAA is doing a spot in sections of uh, Boeing 777s to uh, check to see if there's some, some, some sort of design flaw in the engine, perhaps, or whatnot. But uh, the pilot handled it uh, brilliantly. And it's always interesting to hear the uh, the interplay between uh, the pilot and air traffic control in these sorts of emergency situations. We've got some exclusive uh, uh, chatter between the the uh, pilots of that United Airlines flight and uh, and ground control. We've all got our switches, lights, and knobs to deal with, Stryker. I mean, down here, there are literally hundreds and thousands of blinking, beeping, and flashing lights. Blinking and beeping and flashing. They're flashing and they're beeping. I can't stand it anymore. They're blinking and beeping and flashing. Why doesn't somebody call them pilots? I'm all right. I'm all right. All right, Stryker. Yeah, there was some tense moments, um, but... Uh, Things uh, proceeded, and uh, thankfully without incident. We're monitoring you all the way, Stryker. Keep her nose up. Don't fight her. I'm trying, but she's fighting me. Tender the Havana. Senator, we're, we're going to have to come in pretty low to land this thing. Is that difficult, Ted? Sure, it's difficult. Coming in low is part of every textbook approach just something you have to do when you land great commentary good color from the pilot there okay um you know a uh, because everything was safe and uh, without incident generally speaking no one was hurt thankfully we can have a little fun play the airplane drops but truly i was talking to united airlines retired united airlines pilot friend of mine at dinner last night and um we're marking upon this and he was sort of talking through some emergency situations he had in his 34-year career, and he had nothing but uh, plaudits for the way these uh, pilots conducted themselves. The actual audio during the uh, Mayday call. Mayday, Mayday, United uh, 328, United 328 Heavy, Mayday, Mayday aircraft. Uh, 328 Heavy, say again, please, can you need all that again? Yeah, United Denver uh, departure, United 328 Heavy, Mayday aircraft, uh, just experienced a engine failure, need a turn immediately. United 328 Heavy, left or right turn? Uh, left turn. United 328 turn left, heading 080. Updating 0 at 0, United 328 Heavy. Section 17 left, officer current, Denver altimeter is 2967. Stop. Section 19 uniform, turn left, heading 050. Yeah, Denver approach, 109 Charlie Alpha, 14,000, descending via the 7-3. Any chance we could go direct to the airport? Yeah, you know, because we got this engine out, and uh, so they did, and uh, this is again where the training takes over, and these guys are, you know, Sully Sullenberger, cool, under pressure, and it's another good example of why it's the safest form of travel in the world so uh, good for those airline pilots and and glad that everybody was safe and we'll see what comes from uh, the faa's look-see at boeing triple sevens we'll keep you updated on that thanks for joining us on another edition of the damn prof show please continue to stay informed so you can act courageously and we can live freely and join us for another edition of the program tomorrow this is the damn prof show